Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Wilander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Welcome back to Roland Garros Relived. We're moving forward once again to 2009. This time, Catherine Whitaker, Matt Roberts and myself, David Law, are all here. Folks, where were we in 2009? A lot happened in that tennis year. A lot happened at the French Open. What was going on in Catherine Whitaker's world? I was working for you. Oh, yeah. Doing quite a good job, as I recall. <laughs> Not in 2005, as you said in our aborted intro yesterday. No, I, was like, I was slightly out of my mind <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> um, but yes, by this time, you, uh, you were working with me on the Champions Tour and at Queen's and on all other sorts of things. The podcast was still yet to be thought of, still three years away. By the way, I uh, forgot to say, we turned eight years old the other day. We completely forgot about it as a podcast, but we did. Uh, so happy eighth birthday to us. Um, but yes, it was uh, it was an interesting period of time where Rafael Nadal had been dominant at the French Open and then suddenly arrives at 2009. Where was Matt at this point? What was going on in your life? You'll be pleased to learn I'm now at secondary school. All right. Um, but yeah, I mean, this does feel like a where were you when tennis moment doesn't it uh the 2009 french open i don't have an interesting answer to that question i was just watching it at home but um i do feel like people will remember where they were when robin settling beat nadal and federer finally won the french open it catherine you were having a picnic i i believe i didn't watch that match live i was having a bank holiday monday picnic uh with an ex-boyfriend who's just until just now, been completely erased from that memory. Um, and uh, yeah, as <laughs> this is your Kim Clijsters, Leighton Hewitt moment. <laughs> um, and yeah, as I've as I've told the story a couple of times before, I think on the pod, I restarted my phone because I checked the scores and I didn't believe it. <laughs> You rebooted your phone because yeah. you didn't believe that Nadal had didn't lost. Didn't believe it. Yeah. So you so you literally found out the the final score that way. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I watched the I definitely watched the final live. I've got far better recollection of how that played out. Um but yeah, I'm not sure I I'm sure I I watched highlights of the the Nadal match that evening, but I I don't think I've ever sat and watched it before. Mm. Yeah, well, we've just done that. Uh, I, I was in the car, I remember, driving somewhere. It's it's, it's Queen's preparation week, really, around about then. And I, I'd, I'd realised that it was it would have been a bank holiday Monday. As, as you say, you were out for a picnic. I was driving errand to errand, whatever whatever they were, and listening to the commentary of, of BBC Radio 5 Live because it's the one tournament I never cover. But I always listen to it. I was... I was soak up the coverage that they give. And, and on that occasion, Vassos Alexander was there as part of the team. And, and I remember him commentating on the final set of the match and just 
it really came through the the radio just what a moment this was the the, the sporting world just felt like it stopped all the bulletins no no other sport was being talked about no other sport was being reported on because this is where it was this is where it was happening and the sheer scale of this upset and i still think to this day it's the biggest tennis upset that i've ever seen i think i've all heard about i think it was the it has the biggest shock factor of any of any match we've had i would put it personally second to serena williams against roberta vinci um but i i could be skewed on that one by the fact that i was i was there for that mm. so i was sort of feeling it viscerally i think it's got bigger as an upset, as as years have passed, actually, I, I think it felt massive at the time. But as Nadal has gone on to completely dominate that tournament, even more so than he was doing at the time, it actually stands out even more now as as we look back on it. Yeah. Well, he's lost two matches in his entire life at the French Open. I mean, that, that's what we're talking about. If we go back in time to then, Rafael Nadal was the world number one. He was playing in his fifth French Open. He'd won the previous four titles. He'd never lost a match at Roland Garros. And a year earlier, he beat Roger Federer 6-1, 6-3, 6-love in the final. And as well as that, he was the reigning Wimbledon Australian Open and Olympic champion. Robin Söderling was ranked 25 in the world. This was the first time he'd ever reached the second week of a Grand Slam and he had never beaten any member of the big three in 17 previous attempts. Wow. And he had lost to Nadal, love and won, two weeks before. Yeah. Or won and love. Not that that distinction matters at all. He lost to Nadal <laughs> for for the loss of, for the gain of, he, he won one game against Nadal in Rome a couple of weeks before. I, I, re I remember that coming into the match. That it's probably one of the reasons I went out on my drive. I just thought, I mean, the last time they played, that he won one game. Is it worth it? It's like me at the Australian Open this year doing my washing when uh, Serena played Chong Wong. <laughs> <laughs> We've all got stories like that. <laughs> and there's a, a an entirely understandable. Uh, comment that ages very badly uh, early on in, in the commentary that we were watching um, of the match today, Tennis Channel coverage, when after Sir Ling holds serve in the uh, second game of the match and it goes to one all, Leif Shiras, the commentator, sort of snippily says, well, he's already equaled his best ever performance against Nadal there. <laughs> She's a hundred percent what I would have said as well. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good line. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do, and uh, no, go crack on. Do you want to hear what was going on in the world, Catherine? Oh, I thought something was missing. Michael Jackson died. Barack Obama became the first black president of the United States of America, and the World Health Organization declared swine flu as a global pandemic. There you oh. go. It's not. It's not getting thought, any better. Where where was the fun, frivolous one in that list? <laughs> I've given up on those. <laughs> I couldn't find any. <laughs> right. They're the best bits. Yeah. Are you saying no fun, frivolous things happened in 2009? Not, not on my list. <laughs> uh, hold on, let's see if I can find one. Uh, we've got... Uh, no, those are all pretty depressing <laughs> as well. Actually, the, the, uh, the, the plane landed on the Hudson and became a film. Remember that's that? Not Sally. Fun. That's not fun. A plane crash is neither fun nor frivolous. <laughs> no, but it turned into a nice film, didn't it? Yeah, it is a good film, <laughs> Sally. It's Tom a Hanks. Decent, it's a decent film, yes. Yeah, yeah. Everyone was saved. <laughs> Struck yeah. by a flock of geese. Mm. Mm. So, no, okay. nothing jolly, I'm afraid, from 2009. <laughs> it's all bad news. Mind you, I suppose... Barack Obama becoming the first black president of the United States. That was good news. Yes. So there yeah. Right. It feels it feels depressingly distant a memory, doesn't it? It does. But anyway. It does. Uh, so that was the wider world. And Rafael Nadal won his way through the opening rounds of the French Open and gets to the last 16, as per usual. How many sets had he won in a row by that point? I mean, he'd won the entire title the year before without dropping a set, hadn't he? 42? 
I think it might have been 32, I think. Oh. Because, um, yeah, Leif Shiras put it to Martina Navratilova saying he's won 32 sets in a row. That might be the most impressive part of all this. Have you have you ever done that, Martina? And she, and she says, I can't remember. Probably not. And uh, can confirm that she definitely did do that <laughs> on multiple occasions. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so... Really, Robin Soderling had not got a chance uh, on on the face of things, except he just had a great win in the previous round against David Ferrer, which was probably a bit of a surprise in its own right. Ferrer, such a good uh, clay court player. How about we get Robin Soderling himself to talk us through it? Because Matt gave him a call and asked him how he did it. I remember coming into the tournament uh, in, in great shape. You know, I played really well the week before. And I have some memories from that. I felt, I felt a little bit more secure in my game. You know, I, I had been winning a couple of matches without playing my best tennis. And I think that was the biggest issue earlier in my career. You know, I always had to, when I didn't play my best tennis, I was really frustrated. And then, the, you know, I could throw away a lot of matches because of that. But now I felt a little bit more secure. But, but also, you know, I looked at the draw, you know, I was favorite in the first couple of matches. And then, of course, I saw it was tough. I played uh, Ferrer in the third round and then, of course, Rafa in the fourth. So, um, you know, it's just it's just so many good matches. And basically that that particular tournament turned around my career a lot for the next coming few years. You mentioned the form you were in going into the tournament. However... You did play Nadal in Rome just before the French Open and lost 6-1, 6-love. So what are your memories of that match? And when you then play Nadal again in Paris just a few weeks later, what's your mindset? Well, the thing is, uh, how strange it might sound, you know, I think that match against Nadal in Rome helped me a lot, you Mm -hmm. know, even though... Even though uh, the scoreline, you know, was six, I don't remember, six one six zero or six zero six one, something like that, you know, on the scoreline, he really, he, he really crushed me that day. But I remember it was a, uh, it was a tough match. It was much, much tougher than than the score uh, showed. Uh, I remember, especially in the first set, uh, it was really tough. You know, many. Uh, many game points, many dues, and it was actually a, quite a good match. So even though I lost, uh, I lost big. I felt that it, it wasn't too far off, and I still felt you know I could play a lot better than this. Um, but it kind of also gave me a feeling of I know how to play to have a chance to beat him. I know what I have to do on clay. Of course, it's it's not going to be easy, but at least uh, you know it helped me a lot to put up a game plan uh, to play him in the future on clay. And what was it about your game on that day in Paris 2009 that caused Nadal problems that he'd never experienced before at Roland Garros, do you think? Well, um, first of all, you know, by beating uh, Ferrer in the third round, uh, that was the first time I was past the third round in any Grand Slam before. I think earlier in my career, I played really well uh, in uh, in some smaller tournaments. I beat a lot of good players, but I could r- never really go deep in a Grand Slam. And by beating Ferrer in the third round, you know, it showed that okay, I can I can reach the second round. And then uh, against Nadal, I had basically nothing to lose. You know, no one no one in the whole world expected me to win. So I felt that you know I could I know how I had to play. I had to play really aggressive. Uh, I have to take my chances, go for my shots. And that was normally my game. I just felt that, okay, I have to do it even better and play even more aggressive. And I felt that I had nothing to lose. And then, of course, also I got up to a good start. I won the first set. I played well, but I felt, okay, I can play even better than this. Like today, Rafa really needs to step up if he's going to beat me. And when Nadal leveled the second set, I think a lot of people watching probably felt like he was then going to take control of the match. How how aware were you of how important that third set was and how did you manage to stop him getting some momentum? Well, I think 
I think I was the, actually the better player in the second set as well, but I didn't play well at all in the tiebreaker. Uh, uh, that was maybe the only part of the match where I didn't play well. I, I made a really poorly poor tiebreak. And of course, that was tough, you know, going up, uh, going up two sets to love compared to being once at all. It's, it's a complete different story. But I just tried to tell myself, okay, uh, that was my set, you know, one bad tiebreaker won't change anything. And then I was, I was uh, a little bit lucky to get an early break in, uh, straight away in the, in the third set. And that really helped me to, you know, forget about the, the second set and just look forward. Did you have any sense that Nadal was not quite right physically that day? Uh, you know, I never, that was actually one of my strengths. You know, I never really um, cared about how the opponent felt. I was, it was mm-hmm. easy for me to just focus on my own game. So, uh, and that's, that can be really tricky sometimes, but I never really had problems with that. And that day in particular, well, I was really focused, you know, I was, I was in the zone, you know, even though uh, there was a full crowd, uh, a lot of people screaming, cheering. Uh, I didn't hear them. You know, I was so focused on next point. And also, I think to be able to beat Nadal on clay, especially in a best of five, you cannot think too far ahead. You know, it's it's like uh, running running a marathon. You know, you know what you have to do. But if you start thinking about what's coming it's uh or what's happening uh, or what's going to happen in in the future you know it's i think it's it's really tough you just have to take one point at a time which is extremely difficult because you play a lot of points in a match like that and did it feel historic and significant while you were playing the match or once you'd managed to win the match or did it take some years later for you to realize just how big of an achievement it was well after the match, you know, of course, I realized it was a great and a big achievement, you know, beating Nadal, he never lost before. But I think uh, by the time the year has passed, you know, I think it's become even more of, mm-hmm. a, uh, of a sensation. And I think that says a lot about Rafa also, you know, he only lost two matches in his whole career in Roland Garros. He won 12 times. I mean, it's just... It's just amazing. You know, I know that Rafa was an extremely good clay quarter, but I could never imagine that, that someone could win the Grand Slam 12 times. It's just, I, I don't think we're ever going to see it again, not at least in, in our lifetime. When I think of your rivalry against Nadal, I think of it having a little bit of an edge, maybe some tension. I think perhaps you had a little incident at Wimbledon a couple of years before the Roland Garros 2009 match. Um, is that fair to say? And do you think that your relationship with Nadal actually helped you win? Maybe you were respectful of him, but not kind of reverential towards him. Well, I think that, you know, I have, I have a lot of respect for, for Rafa and all the, all the other top players, you know, what they did, uh, what they did for, for the sport. It's just unbelievable. I think, that we the, all the other players had a lot of uh, has a lot to thank them for of course even though it's been tough to play in a in a in a time where maybe the th- three best players in the history are playing at the same time Nadal Federer and Djokovic but again they did a lot uh, so much for the tennis uh, but i think it's really important that that when you go into the match uh, you really try to show yourself uh, to yourself, show your opponent and everyone that, that you're actually on the court to win it. Um, you know, I see many times when when really good players are going up against against these three guys, you can you can kind of sense a little bit that, of course, they want to win, but they really maybe they're not believe that they can win hundred percent. And against players like like these guys and uh, you know now we're talking about Nadal on clay I think that's really important because you cannot give anything away I think it's so much more difficult to win against them if you don't really believe you can do it so that's what I always try to show myself I I, I always try to no matter uh, uh, who I played you know I always try to to see myself as the winner and show I was there to to win the match um and that's what I always try to do. 
And how did it feel to be the guy to do it? Is that was that the kind of attention that you liked? Did your did your media commitments really increase after that match? Obviously, you're still in the tournament. What was those next few days like for you? Um, well, of course, it was it was tough. Uh, it, it increased a lot, not only uh, the coming days and that that during that tournament, but I think my uh, my whole career changed after that. You know, of course, I managed to still play really well. I broke into the top ten and uh, eventually the top top four, top five. So it was it was a complete different story the last few years of my career compared to when I was, you know, ranked twenty twenty five in the world, uh, and it it basically changed really quickly. So it was it was a little bit uh, difficult to handle, and also of course during the tournament. But I remember uh, straight after. Uh, winning the match against Rafa, I told myself that okay, I'm still in the tournament. This was not the final, even though in in <laughs> in one way it felt that it was the final. But I really didn't want to be, you know, that guy beating Rafa to to play a, a poor match in the round after and and um, and just lose. You know, I I could lose, but I just wanted to keep on playing well and you know not uh, not go down. Um, mentally, especially, um, and I managed to do that really well. But of course, it was it was really tough all the time. I had to keep thinking about next match that I was still in the tournament, which is not easy. No, for sure. So many players will often lose their next match after beating one of the big three. Um, yeah, it takes a lot of energy to beat them, you mm-hmm. know, both physically but especially also mentally. And then uh, you always get that kind of sense after a match like that that you like you relax a little bit you're like oh i made it you know mm-hmm. uh but then it's just a matter of trying to get up there again and then just do it again and i i told myself that okay no matter if i lose the, the next round or if i win the tournament after i'm out or after i win the tournament then i can relax not before wow so interesting to hear what he was going through, what he was thinking, how he approaches these things. That that record I described earlier, how he'd never won one of his 17 attempts at beating the big three before. And here he was having done it and that it can tire you out. And he was so determined to carry it on, which he did. He, he won two more matches, got to the final. But I, I just find him so interesting to listen to about how, how he approached it. I think that's a, a great question about the kind of aggro in that match at Wimbledon that he'd had, which was a five-set epic. And he was mimicking Nadal, wasn't he? He was making fun of his tics. Um, and, yeah, it didn't go down well with everybody, including Nadal, I don't think, at the time. But the way he carried himself in the match we'd just seen, yeah, he, he, he had some attitude. He d- he did a fake wedgie pull, didn't he? In that, it, I mean, it was a it was a amazing match that that Wimbledon match that they played. Didn't it last over five days due to due to rain? Yeah, it rings a bell. Yeah, it was it was it was interrupted. I didn't realise it was that many days, but yeah, that's that's certainly what they said in the commentary right. of what we've just watched. Um, perhaps I should check that because as I'm saying it and Matt's face is going, that sounds completely implausible, <laughs> Catherine. Five days. Um, but it, <laughs> it was definitely more than one day. Um, um, it was weird and wonderful. And the aggro kind of continued post-match, didn't it? Neither of them backed down from that aggro. Nadal basically said he was unhappy with uh, Soderling's behaviour, said that he's unfriendly behind the scenes say, says that whenever said that whenever he would you know greet Sodling he would ignore him in the corridors and and apparently that's how he was with with most players it wasn't personal to Nadal um and Sodling was had those comments kind of put to him in his post match press conference and kind of just said well I don't want to pretend you know he he really owned and embraced being being a bit spiky and not being, not setting out to be liked. You know, he made the he made the comparison, made the point about you know celebrating a net cord. He said, "Why why do you want me to pretend that <laughs> getting a lucky net cord isn't the best thing that's ever happened to me? I don't, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be disingenuous. And maybe, I mean, the way he talked about that 
the Rome defeat for, for just one game a couple of weeks before and how in his mind that was a positive is fascinating. But maybe because that was their first meeting at the time since that Wimbledon match, I think Nadal got out a lot of his rage <laughs> and resentment that day. I mean, it still felt like there was some tension um, at Roland Garros, but maybe Nadal had worked out just a, a little bit too much of the fury a couple of weeks before. I was kind of surprised when I spoke to Serdling that he was quite softly spoken. And I think he, I think he struggles to actually put the match into words and the magnitude of that achievement. I think he can kind of explain his thought processes, but it's it's difficult for him to really say how much it means. I was kind of expecting him maybe to come out with some bigger, brasher lines on it because that's what his tennis was like. He's one of those people whose sort of off-court demeanour, certainly in retirement, doesn't quite match up with what you saw on the court. And I do think his... I do think that that attitude he had towards Nadal was a big part of why he won. So many people used to go on the court basically having lost before it even started against Nadal and Federer. And I think the biggest compliment you could pay um, Robin Serdling is that I don't think Nadal fans liked him and they didn't like him because they knew he was a threat and they knew he, he wasn't going to be intimidated by Nadal and it started with this match and yeah it's um it's a big reason why he won it I think to use your words he wasn't reverential and mm. you're right I mean Nadal fans would not have liked that Federer fans don't like it if uh, yeah. a player gets in Federer's face because so few of them do we were talking yesterday about how there were montages made up about all the other players saying how lovely and amazing he is, which he is. It's just, but it's not the point. If you're trying to beat the guy, I'm not sure that helps. Well, we see it now, don't we? Um, we? We see, you know, young players come along, even not necessarily young players, you know, lower ranked players. They they have a practice with Federer and Nadal and to some extent Djokovic as well, but but, I mean, particularly Federer, actually, even more so than Nadal. And they'll get a selfie with him afterwards. And I just want to thwack them round the head <laughs> for that. I just think, I mean, for me, it falls into the same category as, as journalists asking for selfies. You know, he is your colleague. He's your colleague and you shouldn't be... I get it, but it's... it's oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you could be drawn to face him next week. And his last memory will have been you asking for a selfie. Yeah. It's um, not. In such a mental game, you just can't. You can't give away that ground. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. 
Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. So was there anything wrong with Nadal that day? Because recently, um, Joe Wilfred Songer did a, a chat on We Are Tennis, and he said that Rafa will never speak about this, but when he lost to Suddling in 09, we all knew he was sick. He had a bad throat and did not feel well at all. That's the truth. I mean, we we will never know, will we, I suppose, because Nadal, I don't think, has ever alluded to to having anything wrong with him. Did you did you think seeing that back that there was anything wrong with him? Uh, I'm not saying this isn't a worthy talking point, and I'm not going to dodge the question because I think there could well have been something wrong with him. But how many matches, you know, just law of averages, will Nadal have played and won having been ill mm. or off kilter in some way that we don't know about because he he won and there was no reason to question how he was feeling. You know, people have played and won tough matches feeling ill before we just don't necessarily hear about it mm. yeah i mean it doesn't it doesn't really matter does it i mean um i think 2009 was when nadal's parents were going through their separation and i do think there was a, a little off-court distraction a little bit about nadal in that time i think the commentators were picking up that he seemed distracted on the court whether that was what was going on in his life or he was injured. He, I mean, he didn't play Wimbledon that year. He um, he didn't defend his title. And I think when he returned on the hard courts, he did have the strapping around his knees. So I can certainly believe that there was something up with him because he was, yeah, he, he wasn't at his best. He was mistiming a lot of shots and he wasn't, he wasn't setting the tempo of the match. Sertling was the one dictating the rallies and in control. And a large part of that is to do with his game, those massive take backs he's got on his swings and he was able to kind of smother Nadal a lot of the time. But normally Nadal is able to overcome a player playing like that. He just couldn't on this day. But it does say a lot about how great Sertling was. Especially in those conditions. I mean, I'd forgotten or, or perhaps didn't quite realise because I didn't watch the match live how how windy it was that day. And, you know, Nadal best win player in the world over the last 15 years. And, and Robin Sodling, I can't think of any other instances of watching him play in the wind, but his game looks like one with those those big swings, really flat hitting, looks like one that wouldn't adapt to, to the wind very well. I mean, surely you'd have thought Nadal would have woken up that morning and, and rubbed his hands together in, in glee. But yeah, he never looked settled. He always looked a little bit irritable and interesting hearing Soderling say in your interview there Matt that after that first set which he won very convincingly he got to end up first set and thought well I've won that set and I can still play a lot better because that was my impression just now watching it he didn't play that great in the first set it was there were moments where it was great but it was really patchy really really patchy so mentally to think, well, I've just beaten the four-time, I've just won a set against the four-time defending champion and I'm not even really playing my best. I was expecting to watch this match and see Sodling just redlining it and basically being in a, a purple patch for the whole match. But it it wasn't like that. He had ebbs and flows, but he was never really not in control. And I think that's the point that he said at the start of that interview was that he felt more comfortable in his game in 2009, not because he was playing his best necessarily, but because he was getting through matches where he wasn't at his best. And that is that is so much of what tennis is about. You rarely play your best game. To win, normally, it's about finding a way to win when you're not at your best. And I think Serdling really improved that, that element of his game in this in this tournament and for the rest of his career. That's what I, unfortunately, I can't attribute this quote because I've com genuinely completely forgotten who said it. Maybe David can remember, but practicing isn't about improving your best game. Practicing is about improving your average game. 
Mm. I can't attribute it to anybody, but uh, but it, yes, I've, I've, I think I've heard it. Maybe um, it was a law original. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, well, Sodling went on from there to beat Nikolai Davidenko 616361, which is a very, very impressive scoreline to back up a, a win like that. Then he edged his way past Fernando Gonzalez in a fifth set and faced Roger Federer in the final, the whole world waiting to see if Federer could finally take advantage of somebody removing Rafael Nadal from his path. And that's the man he would face in the final, Federer trying for the career slam to complete the set. So what does Soderling remember about that? How does the experience compare? It was a different story. You know, That was my first Grand Slam final, uh, something that I had been dreaming about since uh, basically since I started playing tennis, and to play against uh, Roger, who's so or who is so or was so experienced already back then. You know, he played so many Grand Slam finals, he had so many titles already. So mentally, maybe I wasn't really, uh, really prepared uh, for that, but. You know, I didn't think much about who I was playing. You know, it was Roger and he had the chance to to, to finally win the French Open. And as you said, uh, tie the or break or tie the record against uh, uh, against Empress. Um, but it was it was difficult. You know, it was the final uh, and and mentally, especially in the first set, I was not. It took a while for me to kind of get into the match. And what made Federer so good that day? So So tough to play against? I mean, to me, Rogers has always been the toughest opponent. I'm not saying that he necessarily is better than than, uh, than Rafa and, and Novak, but uh, to me, it was always more difficult to play against him because he was able to mix up his game, you know, so much. And he, he makes you uncomfortable on court. Uh, you know, playing in Novak or Rafa, even though, if, even though I lost, you know, I could still go off the court and, and, and feel that, I played well, you know, it was a good match. He was just better than me that day. But against Roger, of all the times I played against him, there's just a f- couple of times or a few, two, three, four, maybe four times, you know, I felt that I played well. It was always so difficult to play well against him. And I realized, you know, in the beginning, I was like, why? I, I know I need to play well to have a chance to beat Roger, uh, but I just never couldn't do it. So I was frustrated about that but then after a while i realized okay it's his style he makes you uncomfortable on court he makes you uh not that's one of his strengths strengths actually you know he makes you uh, not play your best tennis Mm -hmm. do you ever think that federer maybe wouldn't have a french open if you hadn't beaten nadal that day do you ever think about the way your victory over nadal really altered the course of tennis history in that way <laughs> uh well he only won it once mm. but you know the way he played that year he could of course he could have been he could have beaten rafa in the final uh but i think that you know roger both novak and, and rafa they won all four slams and i think uh, roger is at least equally as good as, as as those two so i think you know he deserves uh, to have won all four grand slam it's just a shame that that he, his only win was against me <laughs> <laughs> yes he did make him play badly relatively speaking didn't he because he was throwing drop shots in every other shot giving him all sorts of different angles and you could see Soderling almost wanting to shout will you just give me a normal shot so i can hit the living daylights out of it rather than all these ones that i've got to run after up to the net uh it was funny to watch my memory of that time is that going into roland garros everyone was talking about how federer had developed a drop shot on clay especially a forehand drop shot and the and the story was that it was to try and beat nadal and then I mean, the way it worked out, he didn't have to play Nadal, and it turned out to be the perfect weapon to beat the guy he did have to beat. Um, and I think I think we should say that <laughs> Sertling beat Nadal on the Monday, as we've as we've said at Roland Garros. Federer then the next day goes two sets down to Tommy Haas and is four all in the third, thirty forty down, and so break point down and. If he if he'd lost that point, Haas would have served to knock Federer out in straight sets, and Federer comes up with a 
with a forehand winner on the line and that was a crucial moment in this tournament as well and I think he had a he was on the ropes against Del Potro in the, in the semis as well Federer and then but by the time he got to the final kind of felt like he'd done the really hard work and there was just this overwhelming sense of occasion about it and I just I just think Federer handled it better. He came out of the block so fast in that final and didn't allow Serling any time to settle whatsoever. Yeah, he broke in the uh, in his opening service mm. game, didn't he? Is is Robin Serling the only person in the world who thinks that Roger Federer could have won that French <laughs> Open had Serling not taken Nadal out for him? That year is an interesting one, isn't it? Because let's say Nadal's maybe not playing as well that year and Federer is playing well. I mean, it, we'll never know, will we? But I, that's the only outstanding question. I mean, the, the the evidence is there for all to see. Every other year, Nadal's just been too good for him or somebody else has been too good for Federer and Nadal's beaten the lot. But that particular year, well, maybe, but... I don't, I mean, I, on on all, balance, all of, I don't all of think, us so. think all, all of us think probably not. Yeah, on, on right? balance, yeah. I think if, if Nadal gets through that match, he probably improves and ends yeah. up winning it. Um, yeah. Because he's done it every other time apart from the I one against Djokovic. Think he, I don't think he was bad enough. <laughs> you know, he'd, he'd, he'd beaten Federer for the loss of four games in the final the year before the the relative differences the, the relative change in form for both of them that would have been required tennis wise and both to counteract the mental baggage that had accumulated mm. by that point i i just think that shift was was too big personally but also so so much depends on the weather as well doesn't it it would have been quite interesting to see a, a damp soggy day for for Federer and he and he might have been able to yeah. mess about with him yes as we learned from um ESPN yesterday Federer <laughs> soggy tick <laughs> but by the way we should say Catherine was absolutely right about five-day match uh for Nadal against Soderling at Wimbledon we've looked that up so imagine that five-day match can't remember it <laughs> it does why why aren't we talking about that more? Tennis match lasted five days. <laughs> well, how many times we did they get on court? We Eight. spent the last 20 years banging on about Hemman Ivanovic. That was only three days. <laughs> yes. They, they went on court eight separate times um, and it ended up being 7-5 in the fifth. Um, tedious and tetchy is how the New York Times described that match afterwards. So that was a third round match? Yes. So, third, so, so third Nadal reached on the second Wednesday and still reached the final. Wow. Gosh, yeah. I mean, it's no wonder he lost the final. Why really. are we talking about that? Yeah. That's so, Sodling's right, though. It's, it's good overall. It's, it's good that Federer managed to win that title. It, it would have felt harsh not to well, have done. Well, I think the thing about Federer is he made sure for five years – he never lost at the French Open to anyone other than Nadal. And as you know, so every match has got a pressure on it because he knows that he needs to win for the off chance that Nadal's going to lose. And the one time he did, he was there to take advantage. It was still stressful, wasn't it? We've just watched oh, the highlights yeah. back. And even, oh. even when he's serving for it, we're a bundle of nerves. He's, he can, you can see in his features, he's blazing forehand drive volleys long. He's... He's shanking shots and, and his wife is holding her hands together in prayer. Uh, he, the whole thing is, is, in, is so edgy. Yeah, and he's two sets up. So, you know, he's, yeah. got, he's got a cushion there. It's not on a knife edge. It's sort of echoes of Andy Murray trying to serve out the, the 2013 Wimbledon mm. final. You, you felt like if he had got broken back there, everything could have changed. And actually, Sodling completely shanks, doesn't he, on... on on break point at thirty forty, and that is that was a terrible, terrible error in the circumstances. I think that final is also memorable for something that didn't appear in the highlights, and actually an incident that perhaps made it into a tight match because Federer runs through the first set easily, and then I, th I think it's in the second set where the this, the guy who was calling himself Jimmy 
Jimmy Jumpman or something ran out of the court, uh, ran out from the stands onto the court and waved a Spanish flag right in Federer's face. And it was a good few seconds before the security team sort of ran onto the court and eventually tackled him. But it was a it was a really scary moment. I mean, he could have. Yeah, I mean, he could have had a weapon. He could have been trying to cause harm. And if he'd wanted to, he would have been able to. And I think I think it did rattle Federer. I mean, mm. of, of course it would for a few games in that, in that match. I, I, I do. I mean, this is a, a silly, redundant thought experiment. But is there an alternate universe in which Federer didn't get that 2009 French Open and he now, aged 38, rather than sort of skipping the clay court season and focusing his attentions elsewhere is basically only playing the clay court season, just desperately, desperately trying to get that elusive French Open title. He's got a coaching team of Jose Higueras, Robin (laughs) Soderling, Magnus Norman. (laughs) And he's playing like all the warm-up events. He's playing in Estoril. He's playing in... (laughs) Barcelona. Yeah. He's playing. He's playing. He's even playing the ones after Wimbledon. You know, just to sort <laughs> yeah. of. Yeah, he's off to Kitchbuhl to get some early practice in for next year. All of his quotes are: "My career is all about the French Open now." <laughs> I'm, I'm going to play he, in February, and he wouldn't have been. Would he still be playing if he hadn't won that 2009 French? Because he wouldn't have been able to, or he wouldn't have wanted to skip clay court seasons and preserve his body. And so, you know, a lot of things would have been very, very different. Would he have found another year to win it? You know, oh, I don't know. Don't think so. <laughs> well, we'll never know. But uh, it's fun to talk about. And what about Robin Soderling? I think when anybody talks about this match this year, you can tend to forget that he then backed it up the next year and he went all the way to the final. He beat Federer along the way. It was the only time he ever beat Federer. Sixteen-one was the head-to-head in favour of Federer. But Soderling beat him, got to the final, played Nadal again, but then got crunched in the final. Nadal, on a big, hot, sunny day, took him out um, in straight sets. And then. And, and, and Soderling says that he's actually most proud of that win in 2010 against Federer, of all mm-hmm. his big moments at Roland Garros, because, as he's explained, Federer for him was the toughest opponent. And Federer at the time was on a streak of uh, I think 23 consecutive Grand Slam semi-finals reached and suddenly stopped him in his tracks um, and he, he gave a great line that uh, sometimes he just wishes he'd beaten them both in one tournament <laughs> and lost in the first round the next year um, then, then he'd have a Roland Garros title but yeah he uh, did it makes it all the more um, you know it, it's a story you can connect with I think all the more that he then carried it on it wasn't a fluke beating Nadal at Roland Garros he he it launched this next phase of his career, which was stronger. Yeah, we all remember Robin Soderling a lot more than we remember Martin Verkirk or Mariano Puerta or Malavai Washington or so on. You know, all those people have their place in, in history and played a part. But I, yeah, it is, it's hugely impressive that he backed it up the next year. Not, not anybody would have, been, would have been expecting that, I don't think. And Soderling only played for just over two years after that win against Nadal in 2009. He suffered from mononucleosis and he can tell us himself what happened. It was a really tough time. Of course, you know, I felt that when when all this happened, I was playing maybe my best tennis. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a great start of 2011. Uh, I had some problem. And then during the spring, I had some problem with injuries and then I started to play really well again after Wimbledon in Bostad. And then this happened. So of course it's a shame that it, that it happened during it, during a time in my career when I was maybe at my, my peak. Um, but sometimes I feel like, okay, what if this happened when I was 18? You know, I mm-hmm. still had a good career. I have so many good memories. I reached uh, many of the goals, uh, you know, I had uh, as as a junior, not all of them, but at least, you know, many of them. Um, so I try to see it in a positive way. But of course, the first year or even two, three years after I retired, it was mentally, mentally tough, you know, especially watching tennis on TV. I remember watching US Open and it was Nish. 
Ishikori against Silic in the finals. Mm. That was like the first time since, well, since I was in the finals, basically, that no one uh, apart from Roger, Rafa, and, and uh, Andy and Novak was, was in the finals. Um, and, and these guys, you know, I felt they were, they were extremely or are extremely good players, but I always felt, you know, I had a winning record against them. I felt that I was a little bit ahead of them. So of course I, um, my thought was, okay, maybe, maybe that would be, or I thought that I should have been one winning a grand slam title instead of just laying here in the couch. And I really wanted to play, but I just couldn't do it. And that. It's extremely frustrating. And am I right in saying that you tried several times to come back? Yeah, I tried a lot. You know, I really didn't want to to give up because I was when this happened. I was I was still only twenty seven years old, uh, and in my mind, I planned to play at least you know five six more years. Um, so I felt that I had time, but and I really wanted to try to come back because. I loved playing tennis and that was, that had been basically my whole life since, since I was four years old when I first started, but it was, you know, it didn't work out in the beginning. I was extremely sick. I didn't even think about tennis, you know, and that's, that's when you maybe for the first time in your, your life, you really realize what's important and that's the health, you know, and during my career, basically, not all I cared about, but what I cared mostly about was was the tennis, and I think that's the case for many professional athletes, not only in tennis, but then then when you can't play and you feel sick, you know in the beginning, I just didn't care about if I could ever play again. I just wanted to to feel good but but then when I started to feel a little bit better, you know i of course, I think that's how we we humans are you know i and my perspective changed a little bit and I really wanted to come back and I felt okay. But as soon as I started to train and, and push my body, symptoms came back, you know, I got extremely tired again. I had to stay in bed for a week. It was just, and, and, you know, I felt that somewhere deep down in my mind, I felt that, you know, okay, now I'm going back. I'm going to try again, but somewhere I felt, I don't think it's really going to work, but I still wanted to to try. And every time I had setbacks and then, you know, I finally took the decision in 2015, I think, uh, which is basically like four years later, uh, four years after I played my last match. And then it was a tough decision to take, but at the same time, I kind of felt a little bit of a relief, you know, because Mm -hmm. Then I then I knew that okay now I don't have to try to come back I don't have to think about uh, coming back every day I don't have to feel stressed about the time passing um, and I could just focus on you know trying to rest and do everything possible to to come back no matter if it would take you know one more week or or three more years and how are you now and what are you doing. Now I feel good. Uh, finally, I've, uh, you know, but it took, I have to say it took five, six years, I would say to, I mean, the last, the last couple of years, I didn't feel, I didn't feel bad at all, but to really be able to push my body and to train and do whatever I want, it took a long, long time, but now I feel good, you know, so, um, I still play some tennis. I work for the, for the Federation. I'm the Swedish Davis cup captain. Uh, I have my own, my own brand, uh, doing tennis, tennis balls and and accessories, tennis gear, and also now paddle. So it takes, takes a lot of time, but I'm still really glad I'm, I'm involved in, in tennis. You know, as I said, I love tennis. Uh, I've been playing my whole life. So, uh, it's just, it's just great to be back in the tennis world, even though I'm not playing myself. Well, it's... Good to hear that he sounds positive now, but he's obviously gone through a really tough time over the, those years. I mean, he was at his peak. He just won a tournament without dropping a set in Borstad in Sweden. And it seemed like, you know, he'd got his best years ahead of him, maybe even still. And then it was snatched away. Yeah, it did feel like he could have been a, a Vavrinka, didn't it? At that stage in his, his, his career, obviously Vavrinka won his uh his his grand slam finals but it did feel like that sort of 
trajectory um and he certainly had the the belief to do that that as we've discussed that was that was a crucial ingredient that was just missing from from so many at that time and I, I love his really gentle troll of the 2014 US <laughs> Open final. Um, yeah, and that must have been tough for him, you know, thinking that there was an opportunity here and I, I, I wasn't even able to to put myself in, in the running for it. And the other thing that he says that really just hits you in the gut is the relief he felt upon retiring it not having to feel anxious about time passing anymore you know that feeling of losing ground without even doing anything and and we've discussed that in relation to what's going on at the moment as frustrating as it must be for all the players to not to be in the situation of not being able to play at least there's not that feeling of losing ground you know you're not you everybody's in everybody's in the same position you're not watching the tour turn around you while you stay while you stay static that must be an incredibly nausea inducing feeling really just very difficult to cope with Mm, yeah and uh and i I don't know hearing the stories of uh, i've heard these sort of things from mario ancic as well who suffered with mononucleosis the way you just end up lying there unable to move you've got no energy and then you do start to feel better and you make a go at it and then you've got no energy again and yeah it's such an intangible illness isn't it it's so it's so so you it's very difficult to pinpoint exactly what the symptoms are i think a lot of people just feel generally drained and rubbish and some people experience it extremely mildly and some people extreme experience it in the way that that sodling did which again must make it frustrating you know it's one thing to 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 say to people or for people to know i'm out of tennis because i've got you know a hip flexor injury or whatever but to just sort of be tired all the time and not just sort of a depleted force this sort of in concrete intangible condition i don't know it's it must it must have been so hard for him especially for athletes whose whose whole life is built around their body and being physically strong to then suddenly be weak and feeble and unable to get back out on the court yeah i mean that that gentle troll of nishikori chilich actually conjures up a really sad image of just a guy who knows that just sitting watching it on the sofa knowing he should be there or thinking he should be there it's um I often think of Del Potro as the main guy in this era who has who's been taken out by injury but I think certainly you have to you have to include him as well because I think his it was less well documented as you said because it wasn't so specific Del Potro wrist injury it was it was a intangible illness and um yeah just he kind of just disappeared and so to so to hear him explain what he went through is 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 important but also quite um quite sad really yeah glandular fever for those of us on this side of the atlantic that illness is known as and i've I've heard so many people in tennis and sport who've suffered from it and uh yeah really feel for him over that happy that he has got things going in his life in another direction now and and has got that closure that's the most important thing isn't it that acceptance and uh and that sort of hard line to his career has been drawn and he has so much to look back on and feel proud about because here we are 11 years on talking about his run and uh and it will happen for the rest of his days i'm sure that there will be people coming to him and asking him how did you beat rafael nadal because only two men in history at the french open have ever done it him and novak djokovic and it is Novak Djokovic tomorrow who is one of the players that we'll be focusing on in Roland Garros Relived because we're going back to 2015 and 2016 when Djokovic reached the final of both and he came up against Stan Wawrinka in the first of them, Andy Murray in the second, memorable years. And uh, we'll look ahead to those uh, tomorrow. It's been a lot of fun today. Catherine, Matt, thank you for your company. We'll look back on those, David. 
Yeah. But you you'll in in very pandemic 2020 style you're getting <laughs> the past confused with the present yeah, and I, the future. I sort of got this I'm I'm so in the flow now that it feels like this stuff is actually happening that I'm genuinely <laughs> watching these day at a time and they might be really happening for everybody. But anyway, hope you're enjoying reliving them with us here on the tennis podcast. We certainly are. Um do leave us an, a review on, on iTunes if you're enjoying these shows and if you want to tell anybody you know about them do so please because uh, the more people that listen to it the more we're able to do with this show and uh, and i think we we're, we're really chuffed that we've been able to do so many of them and, and we've enjoyed the process immensely so we'll be back again tomorrow and until then take care we'll see you then deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 